Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben Mergy. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. My usual disclaimer, I'm kind of burning in the light here. My usual disclaimer, uh, I'm not an actual rabbi. I am an ordained spiritual director, but that's more of a counseling thing than a rabbinical congregation kind of guy. It's interesting. I was having a conversation with somebody today about this other pathway of becoming a rabbinic chaplain. Uh, which is a growing movement in uh, Judaism because a lot of rabbis get taught very rationally to understand the Talmud and the Torah and the conversations within it and you know how many camels on the head of a pin and all of these things then they become excellent at these things and by uh, I'm close with several rabbis and by their most of them by their own admission say when it comes to somebody saying you know, Rabbi, I'm struggling with this issue of grief or, or this issue of isolation or whatever it is, they find themselves at a loss. It's not what they were trained to do. So there is this other path of spiritual uh, rabbinic counseling. Um, and I, I've just been speaking to somebody about spending a couple of years doing that. I think it could be an interesting pursuit. Um, other things that are interesting to me right now in the spiritual realm are uh, there's a tradition in Judaism called Musar, M-U-S-S-A-R. And Musar is about character traits. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, well, here's the first part. The first part is they, they see a person as not having a soul, but being a soul. You are a soul. You don't have one, you are one. And if you think about that for a moment, let it sink in. It's a different way of seeing things. It's not a compartment in you. And then there's these other pieces that have to keep going. It's really you. And in that, there's three different layers, the way they see it, which is, don't get confused by the Hebrew words, but the original source, the light, as it were, of uh, the spark of what is your soul is called the neshama. And the neshama is pure, cannot be altered, is divine, is fantastic, is connected to the universe in every way. It's a lovely thing. After that, you move into ruach, which is spirit. And spirit is what animates us. It's what makes somebody decide they're going to do something with their life. They're going to not just take it, they're going to do it. And, they're, and the, that's something that you need to animate your soul. And then the last piece is the messy piece that we all get involved in called nefesh. And the analogy there is the idea of if, if nishama, the source, is the sun, nefesh is the clouds that we put in our way so that we, we can't see the sun. And what they do is they take different character traits. So you could take the character trait of strength and the character trait of kindness. Well, your job in that particular case is to try to figure out how much strength and how much kindness you need in any given situation. What's the point in which strength becomes in the case of America today, toxic masculinity, uh, no longer useful as strength. And then on the kindness side, you can turn into, think of the, jelly, uh, the jellyfish parent, who, who no matter what their kid does, it's all fine, it's great, little, little Billy is hitting me. Uh, you've got to not be that, that's not kindness, that's lack of structure. So you need your strength, and you need your kindness. And what they do is they give you curriculums where you really spend a period of time journaling on one character trait at a time and refining it because they believe that the whole purpose of this exercise we're in 
is the refinement of your soul, the articulation of your soul. And in the arts, that's always something that if you lose sight of that, in my opinion, then it to others who are in the arts, who are artists, they can see that you're representing, but you're not being that thing, that you're getting up there in front of people and your ego is still the biggest part of the train that you're on. And it's, you know, I used to say to people in, in when I did broadcast workshops, they, I'd say, okay, so here's, they were professional broadcasters I was talking to. And I'd say, so here's the bad news. It's not normal to get up in front of a whole bunch of people and ask them to love you when they don't even know who you are. It's not, it, this is not a normal need. Love me, love me. Here's the good news. You actually have the skill set to make them do that. The only question is, now that I've got your attention, what is it I want to say? And that's where your soul work comes into play. If you have the, I used to do stand-up 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and there were the guys who, and mostly guys, sorry, but there were the guys who could just do it and they'd kill, as it were. It's a very violent language you have around stand-up. I died, I killed, I bombed. Uh, and they'd kill. And they'd come off stage, I killed, man. Because um, they'd said whatever the audience wanted to hear. And then there were the other ones who had the courage to get up there and say what they want, really wanted to say. And for them, it was a harder road to hoe. They didn't kill every night because they were willing to take chances. A guy like Norm MacDonald, who now has fame in America. But Norm would, you could say to Norm before he went on stage, Norm, do a bit about the back seat of a car. And he'd just go, okay. And he'd walk out there and he goes, so you can measure friendship by if there's three of you in the back seat of a car and there's no seatbelt in the middle, that they make you be the guy in the middle then you know that these are not your friends and and then you just start going and they'd laugh sometimes and they wouldn't but he had the courage to be norm he wasn't you know he didn't care if he killed it was yuck yucks on a wednesday night or 18 people in the audience he could just do it so i've been really thinking a lot about those those things that are not the airy fairy part of being spiritual but the parts that are about how am i about humility how am i about you know, uh, humor, how am I about sadness? How am I about happiness? And all the different traits we have that make up that life. So I just want to share that with you because uh, as much as being a practitioner, I'm also a real student of all kinds of spiritual pathways. And Musar just sort of came up for me recently and I, I looked at it years ago and now I'm rereading a book on it by a guy named Alan Marinus. He's uh, Canadian actually based out of Vancouver and he used to be a TV producer and did all those things and just thought, you know, as Peggy B would say, is that all there is? And then decided to go the other way. So there, there's my little spot for that. And by the way, if you are interested in what I'm doing on this podcast and God love you, if you are, um, the Facebook page is not that kind of rabbi. So you can go there and say, hi, and uh, you know, be part of the conversation. Speaking of conversation, um, this is someone I've never actually spoken with before. I've always known about her, but I've never spoken to her. And I'm so happy she's here. You know her, she's an award-winning uh, musician. 
a multi-instrumentalist uh, and uh, someone who really truly, I think, brings soul and passion to everything that she does, including jazz lately, which I'm thinking is very cool. Uh, but her name is M. Griner. You see, you do know her. And here she is. M, how are you? I'm good. I went into, um, I put myself on mute just to listen to you and it was fascinating. What did you find fascinating? Just to hear you talk, because I haven't heard you talk in a long, long time. And I'm, I'm loving what you're doing. I'm loving what you're saying. Oh, groovy. Um, how would you see yourself spiritually? If somebody said, Are you, what's your spiritual life like? What would you say? Well, that's not the first, that's not often the first question. <laughs> like um, when you did this album, you recorded the, you're like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. <laughs> yeah, I went into a comfort zone there for a minute. <laughs> oh, good. Let's talk about the album. Um, well, it's a, it's, I, I know that spirituality and religion, um, aren't, uh, necessarily on the same page, but I started off like immersed in every church, uh, imaginable <laughs> when I was a kid. So there was an understanding of that, um, or a misunderstanding of that perhaps, um. And then as time went on, I don't know that I really explored much uh, about the spiritual part of my life, probably until after having kids. And I've, I have two kids, they're eight and almost 11. So this is a fairly recent kind of thing to be thinking about and, you know, bringing into life and probably in the last two to three years, just really coming up with my own definition um of it a lot of reading a lot of exploring and meditation and that sort of thing i wouldn't say that i have totally worked it out or defined it and maybe it's not something that you are supposed to define but maybe by the end of this hour i'll have it figured out <laughs> <laughs> well they always say that the questions are way more important than the answers there you go i'd say so so I'm interested in the beginning part where you took deep dives into, I would imagine, organized religion. What, what, what were you doing there? It's <laughs> a really good question. What were you doing? Well, um, my mom is from the Philippines. Um, and my dad uh, was born in Canada, but his family is Irish. So there's a very strong connection to Catholicism. So I went to uh, St. Christopher's Church in Forest, Ontario, uh, religiously went. Um, and then my parents kind of had this like, let's shake it up moment where they said, let's go try other churches. It was like going to see other people like, oh, we're going to go <laughs> to the people's church in Wyoming. Now we're going to go to saint john evangelist in the wilderness in bright's grove like it was like this let's just try out all these different churches and then we ended up like listening to um some american uh <laughs> preachers uh just in my parents bedroom on sunday morning so i wouldn't say this was anything we enjoyed as kids me and my brothers um but what it did do was introduce that uh, this element to life that oh there's something more than just school and music. Um, 
So it was, I didn't know why we were doing it. I, I couldn't tell you why we were doing it. It was never explained. I didn't really know what we got out of it other than it was, a, I suppose, something we did as a family. So as a kid, when the God word came up, what did you think God was? Well, it was brought up from such an early age that it was just part of life, right? So you say your prayers before bed, you say your prayers before um, dinner. Um, I think that, you know, my parents sort of tried to teach um, me and my brothers that, you know, there's a story, you know, the Bible, uh, <laughs> and there, there's this... Uh, you know, person called God that you're supposed to pray to if you're having uh, a tough time. And I think, you know, there's some parts of that that my parents still, um, you know, they still live by. But this didn't stick with you. Um, I, I, I guess not, no. Well, you didn't just say no. What was the uh, what was the ah uh, there? Um, well, I think if you're going to talk about God, um, there are def like you come to a point in your life where you define what God is to you, right? Mm -hmm. So just to throw out the word is a little bit. Um, it's just individual, I think. Some so for you, right? For me, what, what yeah, what is it for you? Um, I don't call. Uh, I, I do believe that there's, um, um, I don't want to say like a higher power, but I do believe that there is um, a force at work, mm -hmm. you know, whether that's in you or it's love or uh, whatever. Um, I would don't call it God. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, one of your kids, you, you, you get him a guinea pig and the guinea pig dies. And then they go, where did the guinea pig go? What, what do you tell them? <laughs> in a hole in the backyard. Um, <laughs> no, I, I guess, well, we haven't experienced that. We've had some fish die. Um, I really, with my kids, I we, we open the dialogue, right? So it sounds a little noncommittal. But, um, you know, I, I ask them, well, what do you think? You know, what do you believe? Um, I don't know that it's my place to kind of tell them what to believe, you know? Yeah, but on the other hand, it is, it's one of those things where confronted with a child's ability to understand the world and life and death and being good and being bad. I mean, most people's God, when I was a kid, was a guy with a white beard on a big chair with a naughty and nice list, which I later discovered was Santa Claus mm -hmm. and not God. Yeah. Uh, so I spent my life trying to go, well, then I actually think there's something way bigger than us going on here. So I got to give a name to it mm. and I've got to figure out how to be respectful of that. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, if there's, when I think about, you know, I, it's like looking at a picture through the Hubble telescope and seeing 
literally galaxies swirling by with different explosions of color and suns dying and being reborn beside each other with neighboring gases. And, mm -hmm. and I think, well, something's going on here. So whatever it is, I better bend my knee to it and just go, anyway, whatever it is I'm in the middle of, thanks, this is really great. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, otherwise, we, we become God. Mm. Right? I Which is that, saying, yep. Right? That, I think that's where we're at now. We mm -hmm. actually think we're God, which is why, and we're really bad at it. Mm. So, you know, if you wonder how we can take the planet apart piece by piece and still go, hey, nice day out. Mm. Um, it, it's that lack of reverence, I think. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. It's interesting. As an yeah. artist, as an artist, different things animate people to become an artist. You You knew like when you were like, what? When did you write your first song? When you were like ten or something? Something like that, yeah. What? What? How? I would. I would never have done that. <laughs> <laughs> I would have just gone and played ball hockey with Mike and hang, hung out. But how did you know? Like, did you need to know, or did it just come out of you? Did I need to know? Oh, I think I'm going to be. Oh. Or did it just like I am? Well, it was following what was fun, right? So writing when I was 10, I just, you know, I was, I had already been studying piano for five years by then. So what was fun to me what was to just make up little songs. And now, you know, I'm 45 and I'm still making up little songs. So <laughs> do you remember your first song? I do. Well, Give me a bit of it, please. Well, it was an instrumental. It was called Dancing in the Leaves. Um, it it bared an uncanny uh, similarity to Frosty the Snowman. Um, yeah, my parents thought it was great. But no, I mean, I guess later on, I started to write lyrics, but that was the first one, Dancing in the Leaves. Dancing, I want to... I'm just finishing second draft of a book. The working title is I Thought He Was Dead. <laughs> but I'm kind of liking Dancing in the Leaves because a lot of it's about getting older and about being in the autumn of life. Well, you could call it Dancing in the Leaves. I thought he was dead. <laughs> I think it's it's done. Yeah. It's done. I, I'll have to run that by the publisher. I'm not sure that they'll want both those titles. Uh, <laughs> um I, I was, I saw something a long time or, or anyway, it was a while ago where you were like 21 years old and uh, Avi Lewis was interviewing you on Much Music or something or the new music, whatever they were calling it then. Mm -hmm. And you were in a bo uh, Sully's boxing gym. Mm -hmm. And it struck me that you were then the kind of person who was going to not let the world tell her what to do. Did you have a certain, like I said at the beginning, ruach, a certain spirit that was just like, hey, I'm going to be me? Um, I mean, not a lot of young women were boxing at that time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where that boxing idea came in. I, I, I'm pretty sure it was from much music. They're like, let's 
take this to the boxing ring. So you didn't go to the boxing ring? They just... we, no, that was, you were right. It was shot in the boxing ring. No, no, but I mean, they just framed you that way? Yeah, I, yeah. It was one of those, you know, where's an interesting place we could shoot this. Um, so that wasn't part of who you were? Well, I definitely think I was determined. Um, I grew up with a really kind of resilient like you know being the only girl and no one's paying attention to me no one cares about my feelings so I'm just gonna write these songs and I'm gonna get a record deal I knew I was gonna get a record deal um and I got it um so there was a certain blind faith combined with determination I I would say at that point in my life um it carried through a little bit after that so a yeah a little bit just a little bit yeah a little bit yeah <laughs> Hmm. I mean, it's, it's good and bad, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there was a long time where I, you know, just wanted to like put a record out every year, whether it was the right thing to do or whether it was, you know, I think everything I've put out has, I've been proud of it at the time, but you know, this sort of like, I'm going to do this on my own terms kind of thing. And it's good, but it just, it did close me off a little bit from, you know, the joy of collaboration a little bit, uh, but maybe that's being a solo artist too. So, but no, I don't really, it, I think it's like, you know, I knew I wanted to do music, so just get out there, do it. And, and yeah, I think waiting for people was always a bummer for me. So didn't want to wait for a Canadian label to sign me, didn't want to wait to make music. So um, just, you know, continue to crank things out on my own terms kind of thing. Well, you know, being an artist is precarious at best. And I remember when me and other people decided we would be stand-ups and the biggest, I'd come from acting, but the biggest reason I wanted to do it was because nobody got to tell you that you couldn't. Exactly. You yeah. wrote your act, you went up there and you did it. And, you yeah. know, they gave you a free chicken sandwich at the back and... <laughs> You survived another week and $75 a month rent in Toronto at the time. Mm -hmm. But it but it was really trying to just say, I, I'm not looking for permission. I, you know, going into an audition and having somebody... I always remember there was this... When I'd really decided I wasn't going to pursue acting anymore and I was going to go to journalism school, there was one more audition my agent wanted to send me on. I said, okay. And I never got commercials. I still never get a commercial, even as a voice person, because... I just can't lean into it the way they want mm -hmm. me to. Okay. I have friends who can so lean into it that they just mm -hmm. nail it, you know, like they're mm -hmm. leaving their feet while they're reading it in the studio, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I wasn't that guy. And this person, um, they wanted somebody who could play drums. So for a bubblegum commercial or something, you'd be, you, you played a riff and then stopped and then chewed or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's about it. That was the reaction I had, which is like, right. <laughs> okay, let's do this, shall we? Uh, and I got there and the, they had the table in front of me and they were sitting in, on the other side of the table and the table had all this food on it. And they were just eating while people were auditioning for them. And I knew this was my last audition. So I said, you know, they asked me to, to do the drumming and I did it and I got up and they said, anything, anything else? Uh, I said, yeah, he, one thing, you know, almost everyone who's going to come in here today can barely make rent 
and really doesn't eat very much. And for you guys to sit here and eat in front of us while we're begging you for some job sucks. <laughs> they turned around and left. It's amazing. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, because, you know, some, being an artist, everybody thinks you're the center of the attention, and yet mm. you're often the last person asked to the dance, you know, and we need some talent. Right. Right? Yeah. We're, we're putting on a show. Okay, you can be on the show. That's big of us. Right. But it sounds like when you were talking about that part about putting an album out every year and going it alone, you know, there's a lot in the spiritual path about ego in the first half of your life and then children and getting older mm -hmm. the ego can soften and you can become more just your true self do you you have two kids now you've established yourself you've done a lot of things do you see that transitional piece for you uh for sure yeah i mean I think the big shift came for me two years ago, where um, when a concert I did with David Bowie, um, Glastonbury 2000, when I was just backing vocalist, that came out. It came out on vinyl and DVD. Remember DVDs? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I had to talk about it in the press. So I remember going, I don't really remember like all the details of being at that concert like i remember some things but i had to watch it it sounds funny to say i had to watch myself with david bowie but um that was my like that was kind of my approach at that point um to be a little ungrateful for my experiences so i watched the concert I saw myself as 25 years old on that stage and something kind of clicked for me. Uh, not only did I start appreciating the fact that like I always wanted to sing, uh, was never a good singer when I was younger and I really worked at it to, you know, be a singer and look at these things that happened and I, I never really appreciated or celebrated them. So I was able to kind of see, like glimpse my younger self, literally. And um, I just kind of looked at everything that had happened between 42 and 24 or whatever it was. Um, and I was like, wow, I have just been like blindly going through career, family, marriage, without like a real like, you know, what am I trying to do here? And I think as an artist, like you've sort of hit on something, you know, not sort of, you have hit on something when you talk about ego, because we all come out of the gate just thinking, you know, even when I just said, like, I knew I was going to get a record deal and I got it. Like that, um, that sense of just like, that's my worth is that stuff. And then you just, when you get older, I think, and you have kids, you shift the focus, but then you're also able to see that maybe you lost your way a little bit, right? Um, and in my case, it was a love for music that really was the seed of everything, right? And then it's getting the record deal, it's getting the, tasting the celebrity, all that sort of stuff that takes you a little bit off that path. And I think in recent years, I've just been able to see that, um, you know, what, what, why do I love to do what I, 
do, right? Um, so yeah, I I think in my case it's a it's a case of managing ego or like just accepting it instead of fighting against it or like championing it. So it's like it's there, um, and how do I manage it? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because there's something about having the ego run the the show that reduces your ability to feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a right? really good way of saying it. It kind of hardens your heart a bit. It's mm-hmm. just because the ego has to win. Mm. It's a win-lose, not a, not a true path, false path. It's a win-lose. Yeah. I'm up, I'm down. People want me, people don't want me. Uh, Who are you to tell me what to do? Who am I to tell you what, you know, (laughs) you get in all this stuff. Yeah, it's very exhausting too. And I think recently I've been thinking about energy leaks, you know, like where do you leak your energy? And that's a big one, right? Like worrying about all that stuff. Well, I've really been interested lately in the idea of of real presence, of actual total presence. Mm. And um, a, a simple way to to see it is the difference between thinking of yourself and thinking I am M. Griner and stopping before you say the name, I am. Because I am. for me because of M and M. Really <laughs> I'm get tripped up with this one, Ralph. I am M, 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 Ralph told me to pause. I can't pause. That's right. But it really is a big difference because if it's I am M. Griner, then M. Griner drinks Chardonnay. She doesn't drink Pinot Noir. M. Griner likes this. She doesn't like that. M. Griner's happy. M. Griner's sad. And you get into all these ideas of a permanence, of this solid being that you every day wake up and try to renovate into existence. Mm. But if you just are in this moment, there is no memory is just a perhaps recollection of things that's always foggy. And mm. the future hasn't happened yet. So if this is it, it puts you in a different place and allows you to react in a different way than marching in as as who you've told everybody you are and who mm. you better be by the time this conversation's over, mm. right? Yeah, totally. It's an interesting place because it, 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 it can reveal true self. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as an artist, you think that's what you're trying to get to, but ego can really go, you know, we don't want them knowing this, just given that this works mm-hmm. yeah you totally know, eternally young that works this mm-hmm. or that you know the right lighting you know all of that although i do care about the right lighting <laughs> <laughs> um what do your kids think of what you do no they don't like it they don't they, like they it they don't appreciate it or they don't want to hear me sing ever Except for maybe the odd lullaby, when they when they benefit, then that's when. They that want sounds to hear like me. kids. Yeah. Okay, I don't. I have four children. They go from ages of thirty-four to eleven. Wow. All boys. Wow, amazing. Right. Yeah. Well, God's little joke. <laughs> try, <laughs> try this on. Uh, okay. <laughs> Um, but I, with every one of them, there's been that crushing moment where I love to sing. I walk around singing all the time. So mm-hmm. I'll start singing. And to this day, there's never been a moment with my younger ones where they haven't gone, Dad, don't. 
Okay. Like, so don't. This is a normal thing. Okay. This is a normal thing. This is a normal thing, but it's a sad thing because you have this beautiful gift and you want to share it with them, and they're just like, "Is there something in this for me to listen to you singing?" No. Okay. No. That's don't right. sing. But I wanted to talk about something that you said earlier, which is some, everyone's turning points often in who they, who they think they are and why they think they're here is having kids, mm -hmm. right? So how did your spiritual compass change once you started having kids? Well, completely. Um, and I went through a breakup uh, with the kid's dad four years ago and it was quite obvious to me that they caused me to rise up and be better, right? Because first of all, who wants a mom who's all, you know, angry all the time and sad? So first of all, they helped me that way. Um, secondly, um, I read a book called The Conscious Parent um, which really transformed, it transformed the way that I look at parenting. So, you know, I'm a fairly controlling person. Um, and the book encourages you to see your children as spiritual partners. So, um, you know, in that way, and it's controversial, right? Because people think parents need to take charge and do what I say, right? Um, that's what kids need and want, that kind of thing. But this approach really helped me because when I when I look at it like they're my teachers um, and we're spiritual partners moving through life together, then I can see that when there's a problem, it's usually me, right? Um, it It's 80, 90% of the time, you know, I'm stressed about something. So I, you know, why are they stressed out? You know, like I need to get somewhere on time. They're not moving fast enough. You know, it's, those are little examples, but like in terms of even just mood, tone of voice, the way I am with them, like, um, mm. yeah. And that way you move through things together. And it actually is very liberating because then there's some, you're working together, right? It's a collaboration. It's not like I have to make sure they're good for their entire life. Like, no, we're going to learn together. And um, that was very transformative for me. There's a lot of wisdom in what you just said. A lot of parents don't ever get there. Yeah, I try to tell people about the book a lot. Um, the Conscious Parent. It's, it's of all the parenting books I've read, and I've read yeah. a stack. It's been the best. Do you, you know, part of being a parent for me has always been about my ability to forgive myself for not being an A plus parent, mm -hmm. right? That I'll start the day thinking, you know what? I got this dad thing down. I am a great dad. <laughs> I have made them eggs. Everything is going well. And then an hour later, I'm yelling and I'm sarcastic. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, who are you? You're Satan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you gotta, you, you've gotta, I mean, if you're going to be on the ride with, with kids, you, I, I think what you're saying really is the key difference is that you're you're in this together and your intentions are good and when you're wrong you're wrong i mean i don't know about you but when i grew up you were never my parents were moroccans and 
yeah. my parents weren't going to turn around and go, I'm really sorry about what yeah, I said to no you. Way. No way. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Right. But our best friends are the, the mother's Filipino and the father's Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she'll, she'll, she'll say, she'll yell at a kid and I'll just go, you know, ging, you don't have to yell at them. And she's just like, yes, I do. They have to learn. And then we just start laughing because we look at each other and realize what it's ridiculous what she just said. But it's how she was brought up. Yes. Right? Yeah. And that's so, a huge thing as well as like looking at that. Like that's a whole other conversation. Right? Yeah, like yeah. Looking at your own childhood as a why you do anything. Yeah, but then the thing is you got to clean the container out to figure out am I doing what I really should be doing or am I just reacting to everything that I did as a kid or was done with me as a kid? Yeah, it's a really good like reacting and being reactive. That's a really important word to to Yeah. On. Yeah, w- whether or not this is a pro a proactive life or a reactive life. And part of what I was talking about with presence is really the ability to be able to be proactive because you're not just constantly mulling over what happened and worried about what's going to happen mm-hmm. and just not being here. The other thing about having kids is, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I remember having my second kid. Uh, you know, we were living out in the country at the time. And I remember walking around the house, I was putting some wood in the wood burning stove. And I just clearly, I could see that I am now, surplus i've had children i'm now gonna die i mean what else is there to do Mm. not this moment but i've been my my usefulness (laughs) has been uh you know wrung out of me and now it's it's going to be something else Mm. do you think of life differently now that you have these kids in your life in terms of how it goes and what you should be doing with it and you know, do you think sometimes you look at them and just think, I'm not going to be here forever for you? Um, yeah, and I've said that out loud, which no kid wants to hear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Someday you won't have a mother. That's a really awesome thing. Good night. Yeah, <laughs> right at bedtime usually. Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I... Obviously, you know... I think I've been a little caught up in like my own, you know, journey and trying to make sure that they are emotionally kind of aware and tended to because I feel like I wasn't all that much as a child. Um, So I think that's really where I try to put my time, um, you know, and right now they're, they're young. So I feel like they're still kind of listening. They're absorbing what I'm doing a lot. And especially with COVID, we're just like, I'm like, they're with me so much, right? So they're not getting a whole lot of um, imprinting from friends. So yeah, I I don't know, but I've always maintained that, you know, I I do, even though they hate it when I sing, I feel like I do want to let them in more and more to my music and my singing and the things that I do. And it's not like they hate it. Like they've been to outdoor shows and things like that. Um, But I think, you know, when they're all out of the house, I'm probably going to be doing the same thing. Probably just be talking to you. (laughs) So, you know, something that you mentioned just now made me think that when you were a kid, the issue was invisibility. 
-hmm. And that the life, your response was to become visible, mm. not to accept, oh, you're right, don't mind me. Right. right? Which people do. There are people who say, okay, right, I'm invisible. I don't mm -hmm. deserve to be visible. Mm -hmm. But it can also be something that puts you on a path that may not be the thing you really want to do. Mm. Have you ever thought that there, that maybe I'm not doing what I should do? Maybe there's something else I should, is there something else, put it this way, something else ever called to you as what to do with yourself? Well, in the last couple of years, I've shifted from performing and making records like exclusively to doing a lot of mentoring and coaching. Um, and that's the first time where I've felt um, you know, that we're talking about ego and, and, and sort of stepping out of that. Um, when I can help someone, uh, with their creative path or with music or with, um, developing their voice in the way that my teacher helped me, um, I get a huge thrill out of that. And it's, um, it's kind of where I'm focusing my energy at the moment. Um, so I think in terms of doing something completely different, I don't know that I have ever considered that. Yeah. I've had little times where I've gone off and done, done something. I actually did support work for a little bit. Not a lot of people mm. know that. Um, a couple of years ago, just because a band that I was in, it wasn't really going the way I wanted. I was like, I want to do something in the community. And it was a great year of just like, you know, really appreciating life and and helping others um, yeah what did you learn doing that um <laughs> like funnily enough i just learned the power of music is like it it all comes back to music but i i was working with a, a gentleman who's 70 years old and nonverbal, um and uh and sort of housebound um but anytime i'd play him music from like the 60s he would smile, he would light up, you know? Um, and I think it, again, like everything, the universe just steers me back to music, but it was great to just see that, you know, there's no, it really is a boundless gift, um, yeah. you know, music. Um, and I guess I also learned just, uh, again, setting aside ego. Um, yeah. How can you help someone else? How can you make someone's day better, I guess. And, and also seeing what, what the world, you know, I know it's kind of crappy out there, but there are, there's so much goodwill and there's a lot of people really putting their heart and soul into helping others. So it was, it was nice to see that. Well, music is a, a form of church, right? And, and if your, your heart is, is, is good in doing it, then musicians are clergy. Mm. right to me anyway i mean mm -hmm. when you when you see what happens to a, a, a an arena full of people even with their phones or their used to be their mm -hmm. big lighters mm -hmm. uh, you can make fun you can think it's ridiculous but they're actually yearning for a spiritual connection to the person singing that song mm -hmm. or to the people beside them mm -hmm. that they're all in a common cause and and it doesn't matter what country you're singing it in or what language you're singing it in. They're, they're all together with you. Mm -hmm. When you're talking to people about voice, 
that's a really spiritually that's a very big question mm. finding voice your authentic voice mm -hmm. it's like when i hear a, a 16 year old trying to sound like the latest pop star mm -hmm. you know and adding a little uh, to their voice and thinking <laughs> is, is what like that. you're 16 it's like a it's like an 18 year old singing the blues i'm like no 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 you, you have to live for a while and then <laughs> you're allowed to sing about pain and agony and love and mm -hmm. all of that but not at 18 that's 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 not going to happen. <laughs> so when you're mentoring people about voice, that's a tricky place to be because they may come in with what they think is their voice and you know full well they're not in their voice. They're in somebody else's, right? Well, finding your voice is kind of a, a term I try to stay away from because it's really about rediscovering. I could Ooh. go on a big tangent here. We could do a webinar. No, no, go for it. We could do a webinar. Um, <laughs> uh, but really, um, it's connected to breath, right? So mm -hmm. that's one of the first things I try to, you know, remind people that we were born with the right way to breathe, to support our voices. So if your voice, you know, don't compare it to someone else's, you have an authentic voice. It doesn't have to sound, um, like you know, Ariana Grande or, right. or whoever. Um, so I think my focus is really about focusing on what's like authentic um, to that person, because I don't have, you know, that kind of a voice. I just, um, just worked really hard to find strength um, and the right breathing, right? And then there's all these other things that come along with it, like, you know, breathing, affects your your health your nervous system it connects you i do believe that all ties into connecting with other people right. so um once so, you kind of develop the tools then you can sort of use it in that way so it's interesting because when i started before we uh started the conversation i was talking about neshama which is uh, the soul the essence of soul mm. it's also the hebrew word for breath mm. And there's a beautiful piece of, of the liturgy uh, in the morning prayer that says, we are the source that breathes life into the trees and the trees are the source that breathe life into us, mm. right? And, and even in a chemical way, that's literally true. Mm. They're, they're expelling yeah. oxygen. <laughs> so uh, that idea that breath is, is what it's all about. Is, mm -hmm. I love that you do that. I think that's, that's great. Yeah, and I've just, you know, started to explore breath work as well, not in relation to my coaching of, of vocal students or, or whatever, but just in my own life, and that's opening up a lot of doors. So, yeah, I love that you, uh, I love that you, um, you mentioned breath. It's, it's, it's like untapped, you know, we all go through our day and sometimes we don't breathe properly and we wonder why we feel bad, you know? So. Oh, well, I love the moment where you catch yourself and you take the breath and mm -hmm. I almost want to laugh at that point because I realize my shoulders are my earmuffs yeah. and my jaw totally. is tight. Yeah. You know, if I'm doing hand drumming and I realize I'm completely tense yeah. and I just, you know, the old joke about how do you tell that, you know, that the drummer's platform is level. He's, drooling out of both sides of his mouth 
<laughs> and people will be like, oh, yeah, I get that. That's funny. But I think, no, no, it's not funny. It's true that you, if unless you surrender yourself and give up, give yourself up to the, what you're playing, mm -hmm. you'll never really be there. You'll just, mm -hmm. you know, it's like the, the bass player, you being one, uh, looking at the drummer like, come on, come on. It's just like, no, no, let's try to do this together. <laughs> yeah. Even totally. though the drummer is always why things slow down, but it's not their fault. They mean well. Oh, the they poor mean drummers. Well. Poor drummers. Nobody appreciates the drummer. They just make noise. <laughs> if there was an instrument you could play that you don't know how to play right now, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Because you play a lot of instruments, but which one would, including clarinet, from what I understand. But what Yeah, the clarinet, that's a fun instrument. Um, that's a really great question. I mean, it'd be great to be like Sheila E and be able to play the drums. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't. I do not have that talent. So speaking of drummers, yeah, I wish I could play the drums. You know what I've always found interesting about the bass is it's counterintuitive, mm -hmm. right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, could, I could never figure out. I remember the first time somebody's bass cut out when I was listening to a band in a bar. Oh. I was just listening to this band and I, I don't know, probably underage or something. And I was sitting there and thinking, cool. And the bass player all of a sudden looks behind him at, at his amp and the entire bottom falls out of the song. Mm -hmm. And I think, oh, that's what you do. Because mm. up until then, I couldn't hear it. It was just, without it, there's nothing, but I couldn't hear it. It was the most interesting instrument to me. You know, oh, Crackash yeah. John and guys like that. And it was mm -hmm. just like, I remember there was a guy who played with Wayne Cochran, uh, who was the blue-eyed king of soul, mm -hmm. uh, who used to play at the Elmo upstairs. And he had a bass player who literally broke two strings during the show. And I thought, I've never seen a bass player break a string. That's incredible. Wow. Because he was just whack a whack a whack. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, how'd you do that? Um, but I love the bass because I don't understand it. Yeah. Like I, even watching somebody sing and play bass at the same time, McCartney, Sting, you, you know, how do you play a counterintuitive instrument and stay on melody. I don't, I've never figured that out. Yeah, that's a good question. I was just talking to um, a friend of mine about uh, playing The Boys Are Back in Town with Thin Lizzy. Um, I remember I played that at a show. I sang it and played it. That's a really, really difficult song to sing and play. I think it's about just putting the this part on autopilot while you sing. Right. So that's the only way I've been able to do it. So a lot of practice, a lot of just hoping they don't hear you when you make a mistake. <laughs> a lot of toms playing over you. Yeah, that's um, your louder. Yeah. <laughs> louder. Cover, just cover me. Sweeps. I'm going for it. Yeah. <laughs> the string sweep becomes your friend. So we have to wrap up, but I want to ask, when you think of the spiritual life of your children, now that you have read the conscious parent, mm -hmm. it sounds to me like you, without dragging them around to churches and things, that you've actually found a spiritual path with your kids that will, in your heart at least, resonate. I think it's got a ways to go. Um, one thing we do every night is I say, um, what it, what's one thing you're grateful for? And that's a small form, I think, of uh, a small way to have them be mindful about it uh, unfortunately you know my daughter is in a phase where she says she's grateful for her her armpits 
<laughs> she's grateful for her buns. Like I'm hoping we move out of that soon. Um, but you know, just, I think if I can keep that going just, and also to sort of treat others the way that, um, they want to be treated. That's a really hard thing for kids to wrap their head, heads around. So, yeah, it's funny. It's they're they're so, they're so oddly self-centered. You think, you know, they're perfect spiritual beings and yet they, they need they need guidance to move away from the idea of what's in it for me, but they're so vulnerable that they can't help but think, how do I survive in this? What do I have to say? What do I have to do? What do I get? Yeah. And the odd time, you know, I do things like, you know, it's, there'll be, we way past our bedtime and I'll say, just come outside and look at the stars, you know? Um, And sometimes I think we have to adjust our standards and just welcome in some unexpected awesomeness. So, Beautiful. Well, Em, it's been a pleasure spending time with you. I really do appreciate it. You too. It's so great to talk to you. And thanks for this opportunity. My pleasure. And uh, good luck with the jazz album. I've been listening to it. Thank you. I'm digging it. (laughs) (laughs) As an old jazz guy. As an old jazz guy. Um, Take care, okay? Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. M. Greiner, and uh, I'm Ralph Ben Mergie. This is Not That Kind of Rabbi. If you're interested in, uh, you know, engaging with me and having any comments, please feel free to do so. Uh, I'm a, my Facebook page is Not That Kind of Rabbi. And uh, I personally uh, will continue to do this program as long as uh, folks like you are listening to it. So take care of each other and take care of yourself. And try that little practice of, uh, as opposed to I am Ralph Jim. Mary, Denise, I am. And see if it helps you to ground yourself in being here for the present moment. Bye.
podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.